0: Welcome to I've Seen Trouble and This Ain't It with Charlie Rodman, Austin Criminal Defense Attorney. Practical advice on dealing with an arrest. Hi, this is Charlie Rodman, Austin Criminal Defense Attorney, and this is an interview I did with Joe James Sawyer a few years ago, and he is one of the preeminent defense attorneys in Texas, and it's just really an amazing interview. I'd love for you to listen thanks uh, sitting with me is uh joe sawyer you go by jim is that what I- actually
1: it's joe james and yeah everyone in the world calls me jim or sawyer so take right. your pick.
0: well i uh you know i've seen you around the courthouse now for for 10 years and I, we've probably spoken for a couple minutes in a jury room somewhere yeah and uh, <laughs> but i so i really appreciate it now uh when we when i asked you to do this uh, you very graciously agreed quickly, and then you started telling a story right off the bat, and, and so so that that was a couple of days ago, you know, and it was, it was a great story. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, ah, I want to have the microphone on to hear this. Can, can we go back to that moment because you 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 started talking about how you came from civil law into criminal law? Yeah, I, I and, know, and how did that end up?
1: I was actually going to stop practicing law. I was bored. Uh, money was great, but civil law I just found to be painstaking uh, it didn't seem it seemed inconsequential to me so I was actually thinking about going to the screenwriting course at UCLA and um, then one of my partners in the civil firm got appointed on a federal case and that piqued my interest Uh, that was an 11 defendant 15 million dollars worth of heroin case All the lawyers were appointed. All the lawyers were just scared crapless of their clients, except for me. I loved ours. And um, it was unusual. I think it was the only uh, criminal case that year, or maybe any year, in which the DEA was subject to a motion from the defense to be named as an unindicted co-conspirator. And the reason for that was kind of interesting. We couldn't find initially why in the hell The DEA, knowing that these guys had $15 million worth of heroin, would lure them from Delano, California, to Fort Worth, Texas, where they get busted as quick as they check into a motel. And we discovered that in those days, uh, if you looked at the legislation that enabled the uh, DEA, the United States was broken into districts. Once you reached a certain level of funding, you got no additional money. So it didn't matter who you busted or how much it was worth. The most underfunded district was Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and we thought they did it for money. And a snitch was killed the night before these guys left, so it was our reasoning that the DEA was complicitous in that murder. Um, The judge never actually got to rule on that motion because uh, the U.S. attorney, having had his fill of enthusiastic defense, uh, dismissed. Really? Yeah, yeah, years ago. And... And then I think it was the second federal case in front of one of the most wonderful men, Eldon Mahon, presiding judge.
0: Uh, what year is this? What are we talking Oh,
1: 1975. Okay. Yeah, a long, long time ago, man. It even scares me. Um, but the more interesting case, the one that really got me hooked forever, uh, this would never happen today. Judge Mahon gets a letter from a prisoner doing life uh, in a Texas penitentiary. His name was James Daniel Thompson, and the letter said, Dear Judge, I'm doing a life sentence. I'm crazy. I was crazy when they tried me. Very truly yours, James Daniel Thompson. He treated that letter as a writ and appointed lawyers to represent Mr. Thompson. And uh, it turned out that the primary offense was that Mr. Thompson had pushed a 1956 Oldsmobile, this was in 1962, two blocks down the street, manually pushing the damn thing, and then says to the gas station guy, hey, can you start the car for me? Sure, buddy, just a minute, he says. Of course, he calls the cops. With the cop cars there and the lights flashing on the vehicles, Mr. Thompson returned and asked, have you started the car yet? For that, because it was his third infraction. It was automatic life under the old penal code. So the jury convicted him, got automatic life because of the priors, had been imprisoned for 13 years. And we looked at the uh, underlying offenses, the predicate offenses, and discovered that in 1955, he was beating a bush with a stick in an oil field in West Texas. When confronted by the deputies, he said... They're talking about me. The voice is in the bush. But then he hit one of the deputies with a stick, and off he went to the pen. He got out, and six months after being released, he smashed the side window out of a car. Burglary of a vehicle in those days was a felony. And they found him on the sidewalk next to the car, reading the insurance policy he had taken out of the uh, glove par- compartment. Convicted him and sent him to the penitentiary. At that point, um, we thought, you know what? Somehow this guy, I mean, he is crazy. How was it not raised? And, which meant we had to get the transcript. We had to prove that in some way it had been preserved at trial. The original record had long been destroyed, but because it was a life sentence, automatic life, it had also automatically been appealed to the Court of Criminal Appeals. We found that file on microfiche. And sure enough, dear God, my Lord, um, the exchange is something like this, and I'll never forget it because it was so damn horrific. The defendant stands. Judge, just a minute, judge. I'm crazy. Defense lawyer. I told the boy to shut up and sit down, but he didn't call him boy. He isn't an N-word. And the trial judge then responded, sit down, son, you've got a lawyer who's going to take just good care of you. And he did. Got automatic life. Never raised the insanity defense. But we felt the point had been preserved. But then we had to find something that proved that he, he, he in fact, had a psychiatric history. And in those days, in the late 50s, early 60s, prisoners were segregated at the psychiatric facility. We found the names of the doctors who had treated the black patients. One by one, we eliminated them, except for a really elderly, retired psychiatrist who lived uh, just outside of Amarillo on his family ranch. His name was uh, James G. Little, L-I-T-T-L-E. And I remember speaking to Dr. Little and I said, this is a long shot, but would you have any recollection? And I described my client. He said, hell yes, he's schizophrenic. I said, doctor, I said, you haven't, he said, damn it, don't question me. And he had a pretty specific, it seemed, knowledge about Mr. Thompson. He described him rather aptly. Uh, He then agreed to come down and testify at the writ hearing on the condition we allow him to bring his nurse and his dog and put him up at the Fort Worth uh, Club. We got an order. (laughs) We did. We really did. The court paid for the... Yeah. And uh, he was an amazing man. And um, Howard Fender was the assistant attorney general who later became a district judge uh, in Fort Worth. But he represented the state of Texas in that red hearing. Bright guy. Capable guy. But we set a little bit of a trap for him. And it went like this. We put Dr. Little on the stand to testify that uh, our client had organically seeded uh, schizophrenia uh, and that he would never be cured, uh, but he posed no threat to anyone, and that he was clearly, in his opinion, uh, incompetent to stand trial when he was convicted in 1962. We never did his CV. We simply established that at the time he was licensed as a psychiatrist in the state of Texas. So, Dr. Little being a man of some years, uh, Howard leaned forward and said, Now, doctor, doctor, you're a man of some years. And I think he said, Yeah, I'm 88, whatever it was. He said, And yet you claim to have a memory of treating Mr. Thompson. I do. He said, Well, let me ask you this. What prepared you? What's your background? How did you become a psychiatrist? And... I thought you poor bastard, you know. Because here's the answer. As a young man, responded Doctor Little, I was very interested in this uh, thing called psychiatry. Uh, we had a large ranch up here. I still live on it. I went to my father and expressed an interest in psychiatry. I'd already become a medical doctor. My father agreed, and so I went. I went and studied under Sigmund Freud. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> even the judge was somewhat impressed. Um, during the hearing, uh, during the hearing, the defense lawyer had the terrible misfortune to come in to hear this read. Of course, we work with our backs to the audience if we, if you're the defense team. So I turned around to see who'd come in. It's a rather disheveled looking piece of humanity. And the judge inquired of him, may I ask your name, sir? And he stands up and proudly announces his name, that being the same fellow in the record. The judge inquired of him whether he had a federal license. He answered in the affirmative. And the judge said, not anymore. Remove yourself from the courthouse.
0: <laughs> wow. Now, how long, how long elapsed from that trial to this hearing? It was
1: 13 years. that Our client sat in prison. Uh, the judge granted the writ. Mr. Thompson was freed. We found a relative of his in Los Angeles. We got him a bus ticket and sent him away. And from that time on, I was persuaded I never wanted to do anything but practice criminal law. Um, it's challenging. It's, it's chess at the highest level imaginable. Because, I mean, the pieces have independent will. But you still have to get through. You still have to win. Um, it's marvelous. Uh, I can't think of anything more challenging, more interesting. And if we don't make as much money, perhaps, as uh, our civil counterparts, we get much better stories.
0: Well, now, let me go back a little bit. One, one of the, the questions that I ask folks that, that agree to do this, uh, or what I'm trying to look for... So how did you become a lawyer to begin with? Okay, so and and looking back, uh, are there character traits that you see looking back at your childhood that that made this sort of trajectory? uh...
1: You know, I I suppose every lawyer uh, can find some thread that explains how he winds up doing what we do. Um, I always enjoyed debate. I love poetry. I love music. Um... But I thought about teaching and realized I'm absolutely unfit to teach. I'm too short-tempered, I don't suffer fools gladly, uh, and I bore easily. Uh, so I abandoned that. And I think that the, uh, the allure of the law, you know, reading Clarence Darrow, uh, I read prolifically, I mean, I probably knock off a new book every week, um, and then there are old books I go back to. I love to read the Bible, uh, which does disquiet some of my friends, but that's the way it is. And um, law school just loomed as, as, as the alternate to getting a Ph.D. in something. Uh, and, and I think I just thought, okay, why not? Why not get a law degree? I may or may not practice law. Uh, as it turned out, I hated law school. Jesus, with a passion. Where did you go? University of Texas. I got both of my degrees there. Um, I thought it was punishing. I thought it was cliquish. Understand that I was the only guy in my class uh, whose parents were working people. I mean, I remember when we were having orientations and how many of you have your father's practice law, your uncles, you know, how many of your third generation would be lawyers. I mean, hell, we're immigrants, you know. I mean, I came to this country with a green card. Uh, From where? I was born in England. Um, I I used to use the line, fate decreed that my body would be born across the sea in England. It was my great good luck that my heart was born in Texas. So uh, we we came early. Uh, My dad was a Mexican national serving in the American Army in World War II. My mom's English. Uh, I was born in Colchester, Essex, England. And... uh, during World War II, uh, merely serving didn't entitle you to citizenship. Uh, and, and so uh, my brother Mike, uh, my mom and I traveled across the uh, Atlantic Ocean. It's one of the earliest memories I have. Uh, actually came to Ellis Island and then uh, to Brooklyn and then by train to Texas.
0: How old, how old were you when you went through Ellis Island? Uh, just almost three.
1: So it was that time in my life when, if you remember, and I don't know how other people's memories work, I think that we have pictures before we have words, but I was just beginning to have both. I was aware that it was a really important thing for my mom. And looking back, I just think, Jesus, you know, this young, pretty girl from England traveling across the ocean, knowing perfectly well she probably would never get to go back. Um, You know, we weren't ever uh, rich. Uh, they were working people. Uh, Neither of my parents went beyond the eighth grade. Uh, So, yeah, it was a pretty different deal. I remember coming to the University of Texas on a trip. Uh, We came to the Capitol uh, from my junior high school, I guess, and marveling at the kids walking around with books, wondering what it would be like to be at a university. Um, And... So there were a lot of things. I think our background, my brother Mike is also a lawyer. Uh, We were both born in England, uh, and we both do criminal defense. So there's probably some, uh, my sweetheart thinks it's a a failing of character that led me to do this.
0: (laughs) You know, I, I remember, I think I've told this story before, but as a kid trying to figure out which football team to root for on TV, I would just figure out which one had the lower score. And go, that's the one I'm going for. You know <laughs> And I, I I and I describe that when people ask me how I do it too, or or what, what makes me do it. And sorta of just rooting for the underdog seems to be a natural part of my personality. It, it,
1: I think there's always an element of that. I think that uh uh we're probably the kids in class who wanted to argue the position that was least defensible, maybe. Um, it, I don't know. I don't know exactly how you get here. I think it's remarkable that Mike and I do the same work. In fact, we just tried our first case together ever uh, last month. Uh, we actually tried it twice, once in February and then once again just a couple of weeks ago uh, and got a not guilty. Where does he practice? In San Antonio. That's where we grew up.
0: and uh, That's where I went to undergrad at Trinity. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Damn fine school. Uh, San Antonio is a remarkable place. Uh, my brother still loves it. I never wanted to go back. You know, it was It's a great place to be. It certainly has pockets of great affluence. Uh, we grew up on the south side, went to South San Antonio High School. Uh, I remember a judge looking at me in absolute, I think the word probably would be shock, because he had also grown up in San Antonio but we had two totally different uh, lifestyles or trajectories call them what you wish and he I looked at him and I said yeah uh, uh, it was still it was the wild frontier back then judge and he looked at me and said it's still the wild frontier
0: now <laughs> uh, do you speak Spanish
1: uh yeah. As I tell people, you know, ahora uh, yo entiendo mejor que yo hablar. Yeah, I, I grew up speaking Spanish because, uh, you know, my grandmother, my grandfather, my uncles all spoke Spanish. They didn't speak very good English. Uh, my dad didn't become really fluent uh, until I was probably 13 or 14 years old. So it was a... Um, and and as as children, you acquire the language without thinking about it. Uh, now I'm infinitely self-conscious because you lose fluency when you have to organize your thoughts before you speak. And, uh, yeah, and it embarrasses me that I don't speak with the proficiency I had as a kid.
0: Now, you, your brother, uh, is he younger or older than you?
1: People constantly think he's the oldest brother, which has always abraded <laughs> me somewhat. But, no, I'm 18 months older than he is. We're very, very close. Um, when we were trying this murder case... Uh, judge Valenzuela, a wonderful woman uh, said how many times have you guys done this you know you're so good at it and i said this is the very first time we've ever tried a case together um, i didn't realize what a delight it would be to work with someone whose sentences i could finish you know and and uh, i don't have any memory of life without my brother being around so i mean there are four boys i love all my brothers but Mike and I were uncommonly close, I think.
0: Why why do you think it took this long before there was a trial together?
1: Uh, Probably because I'm overbearing, um, dictatorial, uh, and I didn't want to abuse my brother. Uh, I think he thought the same thing about
0: himself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, you know, that's funny. I'm a terrible interviewer. I don't do a whole lot of research. But last night I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to ask Joe, or Jim, Jim, and, and one of the, the, uh, the only question I could think of is, you know, I see you in court, you know, almost every day, and, and why does it always look like you're hosting a dinner party? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, want, you know, because you're describing this dictatorial and this thing, and to me, you just look like you're swinging around, laughing, you know, shaking hands, and making everyone else laugh, I mean. I I, I like people,
1: but. If you ask the lawyers who work with me, I'm pretty demanding. I think the, the secret is you do want to look cool while you're dancing fast. I mean, I love it that a lot of people think I have a very laid-back approach to trying a case. The truth is, I can't stand losing. Um, you know, yeah, I don't sleep much when I'm trying cases. I really believe that if you just out-prepare them and never let them know that you're getting ready. You know, if you look absolutely laid back, uh, yeah, you, you, you get them. Uh, people ask me about dressing because, you know, I, I tend to dress and look like a pimp. Or uh, Mickey Pennington, wonderful judge down in Hondo, Texas, asked me, he said, what's the biggest difference between you and Mike? And I said, hell, Judge, it's, it's, a, it's obvious. He dresses in the dark, and I don't. <laughs> but uh, I think my appearance is really a response to, uh, to growing up. Um, you know, we, we uh, were a raggedy little bunch. Uh, so were a lot of the kids around us. I mean, it, it wasn't as if we were singled out. You know, we didn't have shoes in the summertime, but, hell, neither did most of the kids around us. You don't realize... Uh, how different that experience is until your life changes and you start interacting with with kids that have a markedly different existence. I remember becoming aware um, that uh, uh, we were poor. I don't think I'd ever had that thought before. Uh, when I was doing uh, that interscholastic league stuff we I did a debate and extemporaneous speaking so we traveled around to different high schools I remember going to Alamo Heights in San Antonio and being absolutely blown away that kids got to go to school that way Um, but so yeah I I think I dress the way I do because of that experience but I really do love people I mean I, I, I love saying hello to people I think Uh, no one should be ignored, you know, I I like the idea of inclusiveness. It's one of the things I love about the practice of law. You know, we're a pretty damn chummy bunch, as well as being articulate, uh, bright folk. So, yeah,
0: I like all of that. Well, you know, what? watching you uh, operate, uh, the difference between you and I, it seems to me, I'll uh, I'll sometimes have to uh, wait patiently for a prosecutor's attention, and and they seem to sort of stand up when you come in the room and and pay attention, which is great, and I'm— that, uh, from, from my perspective, it's. it's- let, let me say this seriously.
1: <clears throat> I remember being brand new to this profession. I remember being utterly at sea uh, watching guys that were literally masters of the courtroom. Uh, and, and I remember hanging around them uh, just to hear their, their stories. You know, I probably learned more about how to practice law from sitting at a table, listening to older lawyers tell those stories, never thinking that someday I'd be sitting where they're sitting. Uh, Not naming him, a young lawyer uh, a few years ago went up to uh, Judge Wisser when he was sitting in the 299th and complained about the fact that I seemed to have gotten a great deal on a plea uh, that was being denied to him and his client on similar facts. And Wisser looked at him and said, all you got to do is practice law for 30 or 40 years, win a significant number of trials, and voila, you're going to get great deals. <laughs> uh, I think the neatest thing about this profession is, is if you love it, that uh, you just get better at it. And if you succeed, uh yeah yeah i i i 'd be a liar if i didn 't tell you I love the fact that people know my name and that they 're friendly toward me uh, but that 's something that happens and it almost imperceptibly happens you know and and, and one year you 're thinking i 'll be damned you know i 'm being asked to teach a class, and then you look in the mirror one day and, and the ugly truth dawns on you uh, is you 're the old fart that you used to listen to um, so, yeah, it does look effortless once you've done it a couple hundred times. It's pretty amazing.
0: Well, let me ask you: you you do a lot of trials, a lot of high pressure trials, and, and you just described of the anxiety that these all cause you. Now, um, how do you how do you deal with that anxiety? And um, I mean, do you look forward to these big trials, or can you describe a little bit about what's going on in your brain when these things are? are Building up. Part of it is my personality,
1: um, you know. When I was a soldier, I was a Green Beret. I've jumped out of airplanes a lot, usually at night, because um, that's what sneaky peats do. And uh, yeah, you know, I when I lived in Colorado, I one of the reasons I moved there was I wanted to climb the fourteeners, and and I love the white water. Um, I used to be nearly fanatical about snow skiing. Uh, So I do. I mean, I love trial. That doesn't mean that the anxiety level ever goes down. That's never going to happen. There's nothing more stressful than sitting in a chair in a courtroom realizing that just one or two words may, may turn a case against you, that if you don't listen to an answer intently and acutely, that perhaps you failed to raise a question that could have won something for you, that could have persuaded a juror. Um, but, but it's also the truth that I enjoyed. I enjoy the entire experience. There's nothing more devastating than hearing a one-word verdict, uh, nothing more exhilarating than hearing a two-word verdict. Uh, although, as I caution uh, my colleagues, uh, you should look exactly the same whether it is a loss or a win, you should always shake hands with your uh, adversary and tell him how respectful you are of his or her work. Uh, go home, pour yourself a drink, and then gloat. <laughs> but never, never do it in court. Um, and I think uh, that, well, I, I think I've answered the question. I, I hope I enjoy this. I hope I die doing what I'm doing. Um, I don't ever want to be retired. You know, even the thought fills me with dread. You know, how much golf can you play? How many hours a day can you read? What do you do with yourself? And I get to have a hell of a great time.
0: You know. Well, now you and you get a lot of publicity. Um, I'll tell you. To contrast you with me, I. I well, this, this is my question. Do you, does that publicity? Is it just a a byproduct? Does it bother you? Do you worry about it, or or are you just how how do you re- handle that? Because I'll tell you that I I sometimes you know my iPhone pull up the Statesman thing and uh, look through that blog for the the criminal justice guy, hoping just hoping my name's not in there. <laughs> it's like I just <laughs> I don't want you know. Now I have a couple things I guess that there's a couple things that I do that I wouldn't mind being in there, but generally I'm just. I don't want to be on the front page, even though this is sort of a, a I'm, I'm going to release these publicly. So, you know, I guess I sort of contradict that by doing this. But in general, I don't want any publicity.
1: It, it, I know lawyers that I consider to be my peers, men and women who uh, I, I, truly, I mean, I deeply respect publicity. Is it, I, I can't explain how or why that happens. Uh, you know, clearly I like being in front of cameras. God would strike me dead if I denied that. But I think about men like David Broyles. He's a lawyer in Fort Worth, Texas, a wonderfully brilliant, capable lawyer. And I doubt that his name is known much outside of Fort Worth, and even then, not by many. He is an utterly brilliant lawyer. Um, I think it is the case itself that generates the publicity. And I think that's purely the luck of the draw. I remember my first death penalty case. Um, my client had uh, burgled three homes. Uh, he was high on, on pills. Um, he was stopped, I think, on Farm to Market 16 by an officer named James Leroy Bennett. Officer Bennett was an old country cop, got out of his car without drawing his weapon. There were eyewitnesses sitting across the road at a little roadside stand. They'd stopped to, you know, just have some refreshment and get out of the car. And they watched as Officer Bennett pulled Eugenio Veloz, Jr. over. And um, they watched Eugenio get out of the car with a twenty-two rifle he had stolen in one of the burglaries. And while the officer had his hands in the air, he shot him in the head and killed him. First officer killed in the line of duty. Uh, in that county in Wise County and we had to change a venue uh, to Gainesville, Texas Cook County we damn near ran every available juror in the county before we could seat a jury and because of the nature of the accusation because it was so intensely emotional uh, in Wise County um We got a barrage of publicity, and uh, I saved my client's life, which was all I could hope for, and that was the first time I really dealt with cameras and reporters, and you realize there's a responsibility that runs to you. Uh, Here's the problem. In a high publicity case, you constantly have the police releasing information, you know, news release, they call it. Well, what that means is they're fueling the fire against your client. Um, I think it is also the lawyer's responsibility to articulate his client's position and to do it, or her position, forcefully. You know, to come out and make the statements you think you need to make to counter what the public is hearing. I think the most oppressive thing a judge can do is issue a gag order. And uh, I think it is a holdover from the monarchy, the right to muzzle and stifle someone and deny them the right to speak. They can only speak through their lawyer. And every time I've had a gag order issued, I, I, I really do. I, I, it just something me almost boils over. It's like being told I can't speak while the other side gets to scream at the top of its lungs. Uh, You know, you have people writing editorials, uh, putting up blogs now, uh, in the old days writing letters to the editor. So I I think in that sense, you know, I've had people say, well, you seek publicity. Uh, And my answer is, maybe I do and I'm in denial about it, but I also believe that I'm discharging a responsibility to my client. Um, Certainly judges dislike it to the point that they will issue a gag order, and you think, what the hell have I done that warrants that you don't like the things I'm saying too bad you know I think that uh, it literally is an attempt to strangle the First Amendment, but then I question authority generally so.
0: well it it doesn't look like you're seeking publicity i mean as as a, a younger peer it's, yeah I agree that it just it just you're just in the news a lot.
1: And, 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 you know, that someone asked me about that recently, a good friend of mine, and I said, I have no idea. You know, you can't know in advance that you're going to get the case. You can't know in advance that for some reason, whatever the reason, uh, you're the flavor of the week, and, uh, and it starts. And, yeah, I, I, I agree. I've had an abnormally high number of cases that have just generated intense publicity.
0: Are you, are you still on the appointed list? Or? I will be on the
1: appointed list forever. I think that there is an obligation on us as practitioners. To, yeah, I know we lose money on it. You know, we're paid nothing. Uh, sometimes that sacrifice is almost not worth it. Uh, I don't like to count the money I lost on the yogurt shop murders, particularly the first time around. Um But if we don't do that, then what assurance is there that the indigent really have a decent shot at being well represented? Um, I really especially believe it's important for young lawyers who think they want to become criminal defense lawyers to get on that list because it's also the learning curve. Yeah, you're going to get cases you can't possibly win, but then you're free of the force of gravity. Then you can really apply yourself to trying it, to getting out on the edge, to exploring the possibilities uh, in in any particular case. Because in the truest sense, you look at your client and say, do you want to try this? Because I don't see what we have to lose. Um, I remember winning a capital murder a number of years ago. uh, And I think it was in front of Judge Wisser. My client had been caught 42 minutes after a robbery murder at a convenience store on 183. The clerk called in, watching what was first a robbery unfold, and then as he's talking to the 911 operator, he says, Oh my God, they killed him! They shot the man! And then he utters the line, The murderer is getting into the dead man's car, which was a very flashy Cadillac. The victim was a gambler. And... Forty-two minutes later, in it pouring rain, they caught my client en route to his home in San Antonio, driving the dead man's car. And under the front seat, to a forensic certainty, was the murder weapon. Moreover, my client had a couple of trips to the pen for stealing cars. So we had nothing to lose. You know, and my client's name was Reginald Brown. Downtown Reggie Brown, I called him, and we put together a very unlikely defense. Um, except that we got it not guilty.
0: Oh yes. <laughs> the defense was that there's someone changed. They changed cars somewhere the down de- the line. When when we opened, I
1: told the jury that we weren't just going to prove that Reggie Brown wasn't guilty, that we would and they would know the murderer when they saw him. I said, I promise you that. We had nothing to lose. And uh, Curtis Smith was the unindicted co-defendant because the state made a deal with him. As I said to the jury later, the state of Texas went dancing with the devil. And I said, he's the murderer. He was an interesting man. And in cross-examination, I asked him, I said, Mr. Smith, let's talk about why you're in prison. And the state, I thought, very foolishly objected, because it absolutely comes in. But it drew more attention to it. And I said, you discovered that your wife was being unfaithful, didn't you? Yeah. He said, and you wanted her to suffer for having done that, and you forced her to her knees. Remember that? And then you thrust your penis into her mouth until you ejaculated. And then by way of dessert, you took a forty-five automatic and rammed it down her throat with such force, she was in the hospital for six weeks. You remember that? Yeah. And God, he looked apart. Great, big, brutal guy, trussed up like a Christmas turkey because he was a level one prisoner. Ah, oh, Jesus.
0: How long ago was that? Um, that case?
1: Probably we tried that. Nineteen ninety-five or six, I think, quite a while ago. Um, but and that's the other thing: is the incredible number of cases I've had that wound up in not guilty verdicts. They're the ones that I really do save and keep. Um, in nineteen ninety-one, Pat Gan, my dear friend, and I represented a guy named uh, Kerry January. In fact, uh, the man he killed, Blaze Foley, was a songwriter here. And there's a brand new uh, documentary about Blaze called Duct Tape Messiah. And uh, I actually got to see it. And there's a quote from me that opens that documentary. I said, you know, I never knew that Blaze Foley was loved. I didn't know how you know, fond people were of him in our county. Uh, I had no idea he was a songwriter. I never heard him sing. I said, to me, he was just a dead body in a murder case I was handling. And it turned into one hell of a trial. Um, in fact, Texas Monthly said not too many years ago that too much has been said and written about that trial. Uh, it was undisputed that Blaze Foley, a white songwriter, was sitting in a chair holding a little blue book with some of his latest songs in it, Handwritten, when my client came into the room and shot him through the heart, killed him. Uh, my client's father, Concho January, testified that it was cold blooded murder. Um, the jury found him not guilty by reason of self defense. That was the trial in which I used an axe handle to break a table in that courtroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But again, you see, you have to have your client's knowledge and permission. But as we said to him, Kerry had been to the penitentiary. We said, Kerry, what have we got to lose here? I said, I think I see a way through this. You'll need to testify, um, as Reggie Brown testified.
0: Well, Jim, let me ask you that. I I know the answer to this because I do the same job, but someone listening to this who might not know, I mean, how did— how do you handle, you know, the people that would say, you know, why do you do what you do, you know, if you know your client's guilty, those kinds of things? I know you're not saying that, but, but you know, we, I've, I've asked most of the people that have come here, and they have interesting answers. I mean, I don't know, do you, do you hang around crowds that don't know you that might say, Jim, how do you do that? Or, I have
1: been asked that more times than I can count over the course of my career. Here's the answer. The accused has a judge. The judge sits up there and passes on questions of law. He has a prosecutor, a man or a woman who is trying with all his or her might and all of the evidence they can muster to convict him and imprison him. And it is your job, it is your job to defend. It is your job to do your best, to give everything you have to that case. If you can't do it, you ought not have the case. And if you really are going to prejudge your client, you ought never defend. I am deadly serious about what it is that we do. My clients don't need another judge or another prosecutor. They want someone who's going to stand up and give his or her absolute best we have to be able to deal with deep disappointment. I've lost cases where I believed that my client was not guilty. Yes, I've won cases where factually my client certainly committed the acts he or she was accused of committing. But I don't make the decision. The jury does. It is the jury of 12 people who go back and ponder what they've heard and what they've seen they reach the verdict so if you can't operate in that role if i think you have misgivings about it then i think the truthful answer is yeah i'm probably not cut out for this work i probably ought not do this and i respect people who say to me i could never do that and you think how come you don't feel that way about heart surgeons oncologists I mean you think they champion the disease or the disorder? They treat it. Um, I happen to do criminal defense work, and yeah, I I never concern myself with being in judgment, sitting in judgment of my clients. Let me.
0: What would you um? What would you do, or how how would you change the system that that is? that we have, if in any way. Now, and I'll tell you, my, my answer, I've said before, I do feel that, that the system is uh, treats drug addicts unfairly and that there should be uh, more treatment programs and, and it, sh- it should be more looked at as a medical problem rather than a, a criminal problem. Um, but other than that, I personally, I don't know how much I, how we can improve it you know, or just, I mean, what do you think about that?
1: I think we need to reconceive of what it is we're doing. I'm working on a little essay called "Reflections on the Jailhouse." You know, what have I learned after 38 years of practicing law, hundreds of trials? A couple of things. The first is that when a judge says to you, "You're going to pay the price. You're going to prison," uh, no, that's not paying the price. That is an absolute fiction. It is the down payment, because we brand our criminals, we brand the convicted, so that their lives are changed forever, forever. It's not a question of Gigi to go to the penitentiary. You can't live in government housing, for example. You are disqualified as a matter of law. You are turned into a pariah. You are relegated to the lowest rung of society. You can't hold a professional license. You can't become an electrician. You can't become a plumber. What in the hell is that about? So maybe the first thing is we need to ask ourselves, truly, how do we reintegrate people? How do we help them come back? How do we help ourselves? Because I think when we make others outcast, it says a bad thing about us, and it begins to poison us. There are some easy answers. Probably we are wasting 60% of the beds in Texas on nonviolent drug offenses. That's stupidity. But it's because you have beady-eyed little politicians saying, I ain't going to get soft on crime. That's so infantile and stupid. But we largely elect incompetence in Texas to sit in a legislature that is only interested in cutting back benefits to the poor, the weak, and the elderly. You know, that's their idea of moving the state forward. Uh, Very soon, we will fall, for example, below uh, the Mississippi standard for education. Uh, We have the highest unemployment we've had in 24 years, and you have a governor running around talking about how he's engaged in job creation in Texas. Uh, We are, I think, in many ways, dysfunctional as a government. But speaking only of, of, of crime, I'd love to see us reconceive of the ends of the criminal justice system. What is it we want? I mean, do we really want to imprison people? If so, why? And for how long? Are there people, in my judgment, I'm speaking on my experience and for myself only, who probably need to be locked up and kept apart from society? Yes, absolutely. There are some people so dangerous that I believe it is our obligation in enforcing the rules we use to govern our behavior to lock them away. Yeah. But that is a small minority of people. I think overwhelmingly we have failed ourselves. Uh, It's crime and perpetual punishment. That's foolish. It's wasteful. I mean, there may be someone out there who could find a cure for some form of cancer. There may be someone out there who could do wonderful work uh, in education. Uh, We're wasting those people. And the answer is why. Why the hell are we doing that? So, yeah, I think... Mm -hmm that I've reached the point where I believe, in large part, this is an exercise in futility. You know, Xerxes was preparing to uh, invade Greece one year and assembled a great armada and had his best troops. And his general came in and told him, we we can't leave. Why? Why? You know who I am? I am Xerxes Stamets. And he said, yes, but the sea, the sea is tempestuous and we can't sail. He had 500 of his finest soldiers go down to the shoreline and lash the sea to teach it a lesson. <laughs> and if you think that's an exercise in futility, take a look at the criminal justice system and ask, what is its goal? What the hell are we accomplishing? Um, in the end, For the overwhelming majority of them, that's someone's son, someone's brother. I don't think any child on a playground at five or six thinks, oh boy, I'm going to grow up to become a rapist. Yippee, I'm going to burn down a house. You know, I look forward to holding up a convenience store and then going to prison and having my life go gurgling down the drain. I don't believe any of that. I believe that there are some people born into psychopathy. Yeah, damn few. But... Those are the questions I think we need to address. Uh, and it's going to be a long, long battle because I think people have very simplistic, axiomatic views of the criminal justice system.
0: Joe, before, or Jim,
1: <laughs> I got Joe James is very, I mean, a lot of people think my name is Joe James, <laughs> okay. so that's cool.
0: Um, bef- uh, I talked to Alexandra Gauthier, uh, who works with you uh, occasionally on cases, and, and she, said there are two stories you've got to get from him, and, and you already got the Sigmund Freud story was the first one she said. And the second one is something about Polaroid pictures. Is there an anecdote that has? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, except that you're not going to get that one on the air. I'll tell the story anyway. Okay, well, that's
0: fine. Um, well, well, You know, I get my favorite stuff, actually, is right after I turn off the mics, so then the, the attorneys start talking. Oh, no, no, I,
1: I don't mind. I mean, it's one of my favorite stories. I, I ran into a... Uh, uh, it's been a number of years ago uh, there are little bars in San Antonio that are purely and completely local uh, and by that I mean you can't go in as a stranger and think you're going to get out without having the hell beaten out of you uh, they're xenophobic they're, they're local and uh, I grew up on the south side so and my brother practices on the south side so we still have friends uh, and I walked into a little bar called the Noleasa uh, it doesn't matter is the name of the bar in English, and I see this old client, friend of mine, sitting at a table and said, hey, man, and his name is uh, Pajaro, uh, Bird, Pajarito, Little Birdie. Uh, when he was a kid, he could literally imitate any bird that sang. I mean, he would do it, and you'd think it was the damn bird, which is how he got the name. And we sat down, and, and, and we're drinking a beer, and we're talking, and I said, man, I haven't seen you around. He said, "Nah, I've been in a pen. I said, what? I said, I thought you paid people so that you wouldn't go to the pen. He says, no, no, I was making my payments, man. He said, you remember Maria? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. But I didn't want to say it too enthusiastically. Okay. She was gorgeous. But you didn't want to be looking at her because that would inspire his wrath. And, well, he was rather feared. And, and he leaned back and said, man, I started doing a little heroin, and Maria turned me in. I said, Jesus, did you kill her? No. He said, man, you couldn't kill a woman that good looking. I said, so what did you do? He said, my brother had one of those Polaroid cameras, man. I said, yeah. He said, I got that camera. I took a picture of my dick and mailed it to her. I said, kiss her goodbye, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Now that, that's the ultimate machismo.
0: (laughs) That is San Antonio. Yeah,
1: baby. A fate worse than death. Golly. Uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite stories.
0: Well, then, uh, right before we end, are you still in touch with uh, Patrick Gann? Yes. In fact, I saw
1: I saw Gann Man about a month ago, um, doing well, having a great time, uh, living in France and Germany. Um, yeah, uh, Patrick uh, had a uh, heart attack a number of years ago and was advised that, look, you know, this is all of a good time you can stand. Stress is the enemy in this at this end of this profession, and uh, and we all have to cope with it. We all have to deal with it, and occasionally it overpowers you. I think that uh, that was God saying, Patrick, find something new to do. And boy, did he reinvent himself! I mean, what is he doing now? He took a degree in international law, took his orals in French, uh, passed. Uh, he's teaching. Uh, does some other things that are very interesting that we can't discuss.
0: You know, he, uh, you may have been with. No, it was it was Patrick and Jamie Belegia, uh picking a death penalty jury in the old courthouse. You know, the yeah. next door. That was my first memory of uh, Travis County. I, I was still in law school, and we just come down to to watch, and uh, that was a that was wild. Just watching them get rid of some jurors.
1: Patrick and I tried some of my favorite cases together. And uh, I miss him, uh, I miss working together, I miss the laughs we would have, uh, except for my brother Mike. I don't think I've ever been more successful in working with someone else. A couple of deputies asked us one day, they said, how do you guys divide up the argument? How do you do that, do you practice? And Gann started laughing, I said, I just tell Gann, you go first, say anything you want, and I'll bet clean up and that was the formula we never even talked about what we were going to say were you, were you partners or just no just... no no we were never we were never partners we were just uh, Patrick and I met first day of law school uh, you know we were both veterans we had that in common and we just hit it off um, and and it worked I mean it, it, some of this is just pure chemistry and Um, there was one of those deals that was effortless it just really worked Uh, I'm probably a little more intense uh, about it than Patrick Uh, but uh, we had some fabulous wins I mean or as Judge Wissler said gross miscarriages of justice
0: (laughs) well Jim, thank you very much. for for, I really appreciate you doing this. I will tell you one thing as we go. um, You do not look like a pimp or dress like a (laughs) pimp. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you. For more information about Charlie, visit www.roadmanespiritu.com. You can purchase Charlie's book, The Defendant's Guide to Defense, How to Help Your Lawyer Get the Best Result, on Amazon.